Thank you for tuning in. This is The Recap with Rob. My name is Robert Dang. I'm your host for this episode. This is a separate segment off of the Popcorn and Pop Culture Podcast. Alright, so for this episode, I have two items on my agenda. Number one, I want to talk about Stranger Things Season 2. The last episode, I talked about it briefly, but I finally finished. And then after that, I want to give a little Best Picture Oscar chat. See where we stand right now. So, let's just get into it. Let's just get into some Stranger Things. Like I said, I just finished watching Season 2 of this Netflix original series. And for those who don't know, I was kind of, you know, iffy going into this season. I enjoyed season one. I thought it was pleasant. I thought it was very entertaining and enjoyable. But was I truly looking forward to season two? You know, yes and no. I I really, really, really do enjoy the universe that Stranger Things has developed and has brought upon us viewers. I think it's a fun place to be in Hawkins, Indiana. I think the characters are very, very funny, very, very, you know, complex in their teenage years. Um, They're nerds, so I can totally, totally relate to that as I, though I never played Dungeons and Dragons, I was involved in many, many types of card games and board games in my teenage youth, so I can relate to what they're doing. I was an 80s baby, maybe more of a late 80s, early 90s baby when I was a teenager, but still, I was born in the 80s. So yeah, there are a lot of relatable things to me, at least, with Stranger Things. That being said, I didn't love season one like many, many, many people did. I didn't think it was really deserving of all the high praise that it was getting from the critics and the awards circuit. But that being said, season two... Done and done. Now, the previous episode of the recap with Rob, I was talking about the first, I think, three episodes, maybe four episodes of the series, uh, of the season, and I was saying how, you know, I wasn't exactly on board with everything that was going on. And I felt like with this being a nine episode season two, which is just, I think, I believe one more episode than its first season. I don't know, they they were kind of tail-spinning a little bit in the beginning. I think it really took four-ish, maybe even five episodes for them to, you know, give us a clear understanding about what is the plot. What's the actual plot? Sure, we get it, you know, the shadow monster thingy got into Will early on. But we didn't really know what that entailed. So what does that mean? What does that mean for Will? Like, how is this different than him being trapped in the upside down in the first season? Are they just rehashing a plot line of, you know, Will either being in the upside down or being infected by this virus or the shadow monster or this mind flare, mind you? What, what what are we dealing with here? Are we just dealing with Winona Ryder just as a mom crying all over again? Are we dealing with Jonathan, Will's brother, trying to save him once again? Are we dealing with, you know, his friends, Mike Lucas and Dustin, just trying to figure out how to defeat these monsters or demons through the means of their geekiness, you know, their, their understanding of all of these games that they play? 
yes and no. You know, it's always tough to juggle a, a, a sequel season to something that was so successful. It's like you want to change things up, make it unique, make it, you know, make it so the viewer has to keep on guessing what's going to happen next. But at the same time, you don't want to change too much because the you know, the blueprint that made the first season so successful, you want to have a similar blueprint so that the fans can keep on enjoying the season and for the series because it has to have a similar theme to it. It's kind of like when artists, a brand new artist, you know, bumps out a great debut album and you're like, wow, they are the next big thing. And then they kind of like, what do they do for album number two, their sophomore album? Do they completely change it up? Have they changed in their taste of representation of what they want to record, what they want to compose? Or do they just rehash some of the same exact things that they did in the first album just to satisfy the fans? And I think the Duffer Brothers really had that difficulty in season two, at least in the first half of season two, trying to, you know, navigate where exactly their intentions were lying in. But I do have to admit that episode 6, which I believe is The Spy, that was the episode that got me hooked. That was the one where I'm like, okay, now I am entirely invested in what's going on with these characters, what's going on with this season, and I am so there. I am at the edge of my seat. I want this. I, I couldn't... I couldn't stop watching after episode 6, which is interesting because the first five episodes, I was like, eh, I guess I'll watch the next one, or eh, I'll put it off to tomorrow or the next day or whenever I'm free. So I think that's saying a lot. Episode 6, The Spy, we really get the meat of the action. We really, finally, after five episodes of exposition, we finally get down to let's see some things happen let's see where this plot moves forward and let's do it quickly because we're only down to the final half the final four episodes now so while i mean i'm talking about this season i think you can kind of kind of infer that i enjoyed season two i might have actually enjoyed season two more than season one but that doesn't mean it didn't have its problems and one of my main main gripes about season two was that I never actually felt that any of the main characters were in danger. And I think that's a big thing to do. I think that maybe the show would have been better off if they killed someone. Sure, Bob, you know, Bob bites it in the end, but he was a brand new character. He was, uh, you know, Joyce's boyfriend and just mixed in. He was just an overly, over-the-top nice guy doing everything right. Oh, he just happened to be really good at, you know, decoding and figuring out how to do things with computers and figuring out that this was a maze and to save everyone. You know, like, he was just almost like this, this... The shadow of a character that really had nothing going for it aside from the fact that he was going to die and that he helped the main characters along their journey. That's a little bit disappointing because Sean Astin can definitely pull his weight. You know, maybe I wanted him to be more of the Samwise character to the Frodo that he was in Lord of the Rings, but he was just almost like a placemat in this in this season. And I didn't really thoroughly enjoy that like i said i would have 
I would have liked it more if Stranger Things Season 2 got a little edgier. Sure, this, the first season is all about, you know, we're getting to know the characters, and the characters are kids, they're teenagers, and they're going through their teenage angst and rebellious things, but they're also geeks and nerds, and they're very, very soft, and when they get bullied, like, these are real things, and these are significant things about character development. Now we're in season two, screw it. These guys, they've, they've just been through some really traumatic stuff just a year ago, and so they're almost like, it's almost like Walking Dead, like after a season or two of them fighting zombies, they just became total badasses, and they're like, listen, even the softest character in Glenn, you know, Walking Dead season three, four-ish, like he just became a badass, he's just like, listen, I can take on, I can take on ten zombies right now if you wanted me to, like alone, with one hand tied behind my back, and blindfolded, like, they became complete veterans and badasses, and I feel like, in a sense, that's what happened in season two. We have the characters. Sure, they're still scared. They're still kids. But they were a lot more afraid of when Billy was fighting Steve and what to do in that situation rather than them fighting Demogorgons and them fighting demons and going into the upside down to create a distraction for Eleven to finally close the gate. Like, they were not afraid that much of this, you know, alternate universe world where everything is just bad and evil and just mysterious. So, I don't know. Like I said, I would have enjoyed it if one of the main characters died. I think on the top of my list would have been Will. He's just obviously the choice to have died because of all the crap that he's been through and the fact that this mind flare was inside of him was was infecting him like a virus it, it was i was i was watching it and i'm just like okay they're gonna try to burn him out they're gonna try to make will's body you know non-hospitable so that this shadow demon gets out of him i get it i get that but if this demon is that really that evil and that bad like i don't know i was just like there's no way that he can get out of will's body and save will and on top of that all the good guys win. And that's kind of what happened. Sure, the, the, the demi-dogs and, the, and, the, and, you know, they got a lot of the, <clears throat> they got a lot of the, the people from the lab and the, the, the security and things like that. But they were already kind of considered bad people. We didn't like the lab at all. We don't like Hawkins Lab. We know all the crap that they did to Eleven and Eight. We know that they are kind of on the borderline and their moral ethics are very blurred. So we're not really rooting for them. So to have all of them die was really insignificant. It was kind of like we're rooting for the Shadow Demon to kill all of them. So yeah, just to not have a main character or a likable character die was, in my opinion, a flaw of this season. Um, aside from that, can we just say, just, just a little, just a little note here that I haven't given this much thought, but I'm going to after this podcast is that I want to really go down through the lists of movies and television shows and kind of rank the worst parenting displayed on any type of medium. And I'm going to say that Stranger Things, and definitely Stranger Things season two is up there. It's like... 
Mike's parents, Mike's and Nance's parents are just terrible. <laughs> they just don't give a crap about where their kids are. Forget about Dustin's mom, like just cat frenzy and just is completely oblivious about life. And I don't really know. I mean, Will's parents or, you know, his mom, sure, like she cares about him very much. And, you know, she, obviously when something traumatic like that happens, she's going to be overprotective. But still, this is such... And, and, oh, let's talk about Hopper, you know, kind of being the guardian of Eleven and his way of dealing with things. Sure, he went through his terrible tragedy with his child. Um, but still, like, his parenting style is not really there. But maybe this is, rings true to how parents were in the 80s. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I wasn't a parent in the 80s. I wasn't really even conscious of how things were going on in the 80s. But but yeah, I'm saying that they just did not care where their children were at any time or any given moment. And that is, I mean, that gives you a lot more creative freedom to what these kids and what these children were able to do throughout the show. But is that really realistic if something, I don't know, if, 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 if things were happening around town and if you didn't hear from your kid for over like a day, that's just silly. That's just that just wouldn't happen. All right. Well, I just have a couple more thoughts, and I'm gonna wrap up what I think about uh, season two. I thought that Will from the last episode, I mentioned that Will was giving an extraordinary performance, and I found out his name Noah Schnapp or Schnapp. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I looked it up. And because I didn't know his name in the last episode. But he continued to give such an amazing performance. Because like, you know, I mentioned, he had little to nothing to do first season. He was kind of just trapped in the upside down. He kind of just played like a zombie or just lost boy this entire time. But in season two, he is given some serious acting capabilities and these these scenes where he really had to step up to the plate and he was hitting homer after home run. Amazing. Again, for, for, for an actor or, or for a character that I didn't even think can act or didn't need to in the first season, he really, really, really did shine in season two. Also on top of that... Eleven, you know, Millie Bobby Brown is just awesome. She gives another great performance in season two. She was the best thing in season one. She is arguably the best thing in season two as well. Her scenes um, with Hopper, her scenes when she's really just trying to find her mama, and when she has her basically bottle episode, uh, episode number seven with the, I think it's called the sister or something like that. Like that's her episode and she kills it. She does an amazing job in it. And I, it was so funny. I was talking with my wife and we were like, how old do you think Millie Bobby Brown is? Because flipping through the channels on MTV, we see the cast of Stranger Things and I'm like, oh, you know, she has an accent. That's weird. She doesn't have an accent. I'm still always amazed when any actor hides their accent in a TV show or a movie. I'm like, that's just crazy to me. But that being said, I'm, I'm like, she, she, it's funny with her shaggy, you know, curly hair and be in the first half of the season, I'm just like, oh yeah, she looks like a kid. She looks like a kid. And then when she goes through episode seven and on with her slicked back, punky look, when she meets, you know, eight, her sister and stuff like that, when she goes by Jane now, like, she looked so much older 
and we were guessing. My wife said uh, 20. I guess 17 years old, and I think we looked it up, and she's actually still 13 or 14 years old, which is incredible. So good for you, Millie Bobby Brown. Keep up the great work. I want to talk a little bit about Billy, this villainous character that was so... I don't know. I feel I felt confused watching him in this show because I don't know if the writers knew what to do with him. Maybe they had an idea in the beginning of the season. It's like, okay, we're going to introduce Billy. We're going to introduce him. He has a stepsister, Max. Um, he's going to be kind of a, you know, a wild card. You know, he's going to be, he's going to be a short fuse. He's going to have a troubled childhood or just a, a, not a great domestic life. And he's going to basically be a, maybe a bully. Maybe replacing Steve as the a-hole of, you know, the high school. And I don't know what happened with his character. Even though he he is so charismatic. I don't know what actor plays Billy. But he is so charismatic that he owns the scenes that he's in. He just had little to nothing to do with the actual plot line. So it was distracting when he was on the screen. Because I was just really really perplexed by what they wanted to do and what they wanted to achieve with Billy. I don't know. I don't I wasn't in the writers room. I don't know what they they were thinking with Billy. It's like I said, it seemed like they had some type of character that they wanted to introduce in the beginning of the season and but for the rest of the season he was just very sparingly used and he was used almost randomly. And he would, they would just, he would just pop up at certain times. He'd be like, okay, yeah, he's a badass. You know, he's kind of an asshole. He smokes. He drinks. He he lifts weights. He hits on people's mothers, and he want he hates his sister and he hates his dad, but he can't hate you know his dad's girlfriend. And you know, he wants he gets into a fight with Steve, which you know was so dumb in my opinion. Other than the fact that it really made Steve. Probably my favorite character. I think his his story arc has been so interesting. And it started as a lame one, in my opinion, in season one. But it, it, it blossomed into this incredible arc where he's with uh, Nancy. And he seems like he truly loves her. But at the same time, he's given up all of his badassery. He's given up all of his jerkiness to be with Nancy. And then... Now there's this love triangle with Nancy, Jonathan, and, and Steve. He helps out Dustin for whatever reason. It's like, come on, you're Steve. You're, you're a good-looking guy with a great hair. And this, this, this little kid comes up to you and asks for your help. You just help him? You, know, you don't know that you're getting into, getting into it with more demigorgons and demi-dogs and things like that. And he almost sacrifices himself. So Steve was on like number two on my list. But I'm just like, he should have just died. And he probably should have died maybe two or three times. But he could have easily died, and that would have been pretty impactful. Though, not going to lie, when he was fighting, when Steve was fighting Billy, I was watching with my wife, I'm just like, the kids just are, aren't doing anything other than Max eventually, like, you know, stabbing her brother, her, st her stepbrother with the needle. But he's getting his ass kicked, like, completely, almost at a point where I'm, I'm feeling like Billy's about to kill him, and you have... Lucas, Mike, and Dustin just shouting in the background, stop, stop, oh my god, like, they, they don't do anything, 
I don't know. That it was just such a stupid scene in my opinion. But Steve is almost like the hero of the show so far in my book. Um, okay, so that's pretty much it. Like I said, I enjoyed season two a lot. It there were a lot of moments though that were just very very convenient. It's it's like you know I liked what they were trying to do with Will. Trying to put him in the garage, cover it up so he has no idea where he is, or the mind flare can't figure it out. And then the phone rings. He hears it. Of course, the phone rings so conveniently when the music stops. <laughs> Second of all, the phone keeps ringing, and even though they try to, you know, hang up on it, and then the mind flare figures out where they are, sends some demi dogs, but only sends one demi dog apparently. Could have sent five. Could have sent two. Could have sent 15, but only sent one. And that demodog was on the outside of the house. Everyone's ready to shoot it, to bash it with a bat, to hit it with your slingshot. But guess what? Eleven comes here. Just in time to kill that demodog with her, you know, powers. A little bit too convenient for my liking. A little bit too sappy at the end with the, the dance. But I like the dance because... Where the show really, really excels and succeeds in is developing these characters as teenagers and as kids who really, really, you know, at this moment in your life, you really, really value friendship. And these guys, you can tell, like, they, they, they have, well, Mike has a really hard time accepting Max into their groups. Like, she's not a part of the party. We have these secrets. Friends don't lie. They, this show really values friendship and the bonds that are created in this, you know, time and era of life. And it's significant. And it's a it's a central theme of the show, and it's one theme that I'm true. I truly, truly do appreciate them, and they they flesh it out pretty well. Um, now we're getting into a little bit more of romantic storylines, where you know Lucas and Dustin like Max, and Mike clearly likes Eleven, and they kiss for the first time. So I get that. That's pretty cool. I don't want that to take over the show. Please don't let that be a distraction for season three when there are significantly more important things such as guess what the upside down still there like just because you closed the gate that doesn't really mean much and i think it might have been like a big thing that the mind flyer is still around this just shadow demon is still there we get it that they were able to you know you know perform an exorcist basically and got that shadow thing out of will but so that thing is still around the upside down is still very very there um, how are they going to open up another portal into the real world? Don't know. Is Will going to continue to have these flashes or these, you know, now memories? Who knows? What part is 8 going to play going forward? It was a fascinating storyline with 8 and 11. I would love to see that fleshed out more in Season 3. And the mystery is Dr. Brenner. Is he really still around? Is he not? I'm intrigued. I'm on board. Season 3, please come soon. Maybe next Halloween. Can't wait for it. Alright, so that's Season 2 of Stranger Things. Let me just take a sip of my tea. I'm going to get into some Best Picture Oscar previews. Usually in a, in a normal podcast, this is when I would play some music. Actually, no. I'm going to play you off with a little bit more Stranger Things right now. Let's go. Oh, crap. Here we go.
Okay, that's it. That's it. That's all you get. Um, yeah, it's strange talking for like twenty minutes straight without having someone like my buddy Mike Sheehan to kind of fill in the gap, so I can just take a a sip of water, man. It's like giving a speech or something. All right. So, like I said, we are in the first week of November. So that means it's Oscar season. I love the Oscars. I love movies. I love following this award season. So it's never too early to start talking about the best pictures and Oscars and who's going to be nominated and who's going to win. But because I am just a peasant in the movie world, I'm not a critic. I'm, I have no insider information. I have not seen any of the movies that are really getting a lot of attention for um, the Best Picture Oscar race, other than some of the big ones. And so I'm going to start out by talking about Dunkirk. Dunkirk was the World War II movie uh, directed, and I believe written by Christopher Nolan. And that is one that is on everyone's radar right now. But we're not sure exactly how far this film can go, how high this film can fly. It was released in the summertime, which is usually a little bit too early for a film to be taken seriously. And although, you know, the, the although there is this notion that war movies do well at the Academy Awards, a war movie has not won Best Picture since The Hurt Locker in 2019. So that has been a long time. But is this arguably the best war movie since The Hurt Locker? I would say that's a pretty decent statement to make. I would say that's fairly accurate. But, you know, if you follow Oscars and the history of it, you know, they have not been too kind to Christopher Nolan, even though he has made some amazing films and some of my favorite films of all time. I don't believe he's ever been nominated for Best Director. I think he's gotten in a couple writing, a lot of visual effects for his movies, but never anything for uh, Best Director. And I think maybe one or two of his films were nominated for Best Picture, but they haven't won. So, what does that mean for Dunkirk? Is it going to be where the Academy members say, this is Chris Nolan's time. We're going to have to rally behind this movie. We're going to give him his Best Director nomination that he deserves as a, you know, a career achievement that they've been snubbing him time and time after again. Is Dunkirk going to be a top movie going into the race? Is it? Does it have a legitimate chance to win when the movie was so... You know, untraditional. There, there is, there is no character development in the film. It is a an experience. It is a visual marvel. It is such a film that you remember. You remember this film when you see it. And again, this is the only film that I've seen out of the films that are you know kind of being quote unquote talked about for best picture race. But Dunkirk was just such an amazing film. And it hits upon so many things that I've never felt before while watching movie, like like you know like like all the critics are saying that Dunkirk, there's really no like main character, there's really no standout performances other than maybe Mark Rylance, uh, so he might maybe get sneak into a best supporting actor role here, but it's more of feeling like you are actually in this setting, in this war, in this. You know, chaotic, you know, 
desperation type of war zone where you don't even know when you're going to die. You don't even know if you're going to make it out alive. You don't even know what to do. No one knows what's going on and when are we going home. We're so close. You can taste home and freedom, but you are still so far away because the Germans are right on your asses. I don't, it's such such a great, great film. I want to watch it again. I can't wait to watch it again. But how much will the Academy really accept this film? That, that's that's kind of open because... Okay, so I think Dunkirk has a very, very good chance of being nominated within the top 8, 9, 10 movies that will be nominated for Best Picture this year. I would say guaranteed it's in. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But will it win? That's yet to be said. And I'm saying it's not going to win because it's going to have a lot of competition with another film called The Darkest Hour. Now, this is a film by Joe Wright, who has a history of being, you know, nominated for Oscars and things like that. And this is where, this is another World War II film and where Gary Oldman plays Winston Churchill. So, I think these two films are going to maybe not cancel each other out, but they're really going to compete against each other. They're really going to butt heads with one another because they are... Two films around the same exact time, the same war, but done completely, completely differently. Again, I haven't seen Dark Sour, but it is a lot more of a character study. It's a lot more of a typical Oscar film and one where you can, you're going to feel emotions for the characters. And, you know, this is, like I said, like a biopic. These are, these are real life events that happened in history. So it can be uplifting. It can be tragic. It's going to be, like I said, Gary Oldman's going to be great in it. And he is likely going to get a nomination for Best Actor. So The Darkest Hour can truly, truly hurt Dunkirk's chances of winning. I'm going to say both of them are probably going to get nominated. But will one of them, you know, be the Best Picture winner? Maybe. But will they both cancel each other out for another film to come in? That is very, very likely as well. Some of the films that have been getting lots of attention is... Uh, another one is called The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. He's um, he's just an extraordinary uh, director. And I love so many films that he has done, such as Pan's Labyrinth. That's probably my favorite. And he has really almost... I'm not sure if he was the one, but he was definitely a part of the collected group of directors along with Alejandro Iñárritu and uh, Alfonso Caron to really step up into cinema as directors and just telling such unique and great stories. Del Toro has really stayed in a fantasy sci-fi type of, uh, you know, box to say not that he can't do anything else but he just truly loves it and you can tell and maybe that's why he's been the one that hasn't really been recognized yet at the oscars because that is a hard sell for academy members to really really embrace sci-fi and fantasy films you know in yanitu he got his payday with um the revenant and with birdman alfonso caron with gravity and his you know but they have all great vision as directors, and hopefully, and maybe this is Guillermo del Toro's year. Again, I don't know too much about The Shape of Water. I know it's gain, gaining a lot of attention, 
It is one of the top films going into this year by a lot of critics and a lot of people who have seen it in festivals, movie festivals. It stars Sally Hawkins, which a lot of people are, you know, stating that she gives such a great performance that she should be the front runner for Best Actress this year. And so I'm intrigued. Again, I don't know too much about it. I believe this is a Fox Searchlight film, so it's going to be independent. And but they usually produce, you know, great, great, great movies. So I cannot wait to see The Shape of Water. What's next? The Post. The Post is a movie directed by Steven Spielberg, big name, starring arguably two of the biggest actors of all time. That would be Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Come on. You have Hanks, Streep, and Spielberg. This is like the best combination for Oscar bait of all time. This is why this is a film that no one has seen. I'm not even sure if this film is done yet. No one has seen. There might not even be pictures or footage of this film yet. But still, people are discussing it as a heavy frontrunner for Best Picture just because of those names. And to be fair, Spielberg has his ups and downs in Oscars. But no matter what he does, he still kind of makes an impact. And my example of this is that War Horse was nominated for Best Picture um, in 2011. And that was not a good film. <laughs> All right. It's not. It wasn't. It wasn't a, a crap film, but it wasn't that good of a film, and I was utterly shocked that it was nominated for Best Picture. It could not have been more of a sappy, Oscar bait type of melodrama that really should not have been received as a Best Picture nominee. But it's Spielberg. He has this Midas touch, where everything that he does and has his name involved in gets some type of Oscar attention. So look for that. I mean, my boy Tom Hanks and uh, Meryl Streep is going for her, whatever, a millionth nominee in the Oscars. So that's going to be one to really, really pay attention to. Another film is Phantom Thread. And this one, I might be more interested than others, but this is a Paul Thomas Anderson film starring Daniel Day-Lewis in what is reported as his last acting performance ever in his career. And we all know Daniel Day-Lewis because he has Oscars for Best uh, Lead Actor. He, um, he gives some great, great performance. He is known to really, really get into the role and to method act and to just lose himself in roles such as Lincoln and such as uh, There Will Be Blood as Daniel Plainview. So will this be a good enough, like, you know, final role for Daniel Day-Lewis? Well, he, he arguably gave his best performance in a Paul Thomas Anderson film before in There Will Be Blood. Can they relive and rehash this magic that they had? I hope so. Again, I watched the trailer for Phantom Thread, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's not really telling you much. So I am still very, you know, I'm, I'm eager to know what the film is really about. I'm eager to see how well it can do. It's no doubt going to be a very small film. Paul Thomas Anderson just does small films. Even when with like inherent vice and you know and the master, those are these are without a doubt not big films. He will not do these big type of films, but he will 
without a doubt, get the most out of his actors. He will, without a doubt, make a film that is not exactly on the same path or parallel to Hollywood films that you're used to watching. And sometimes that could be polarizing from viewers, from critics, from Academy voting members, which is maybe why he hasn't really stepped up and really, really delivered a film that everyone could be on board with. Will Phantom Thread do that? Knowing PTA and following him throughout the years, probably not. But we'll see. We'll see. And will Daniel Day-Lewis get his... Uh, get his get another Oscar because he's saying this is his last acting role forever? Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, so, in my opinion, those are the films that are at the top of the Oscar race. There's also films like Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri that I'm really, really excited to see because people are comparing it to Fargo. And, of course, Francis McDormand, I believe, is in it. So, and there's a Martin McDonough film. I'm very, very interested in this film. It can be great, or it can be a complete miss and just not even be recognized. It might be too small of a film. Other films to kind of take notice is uh, Lady Bird, which is a Greta Gerwig directorial debut. It could be the, you know, the, the good feel, the, the feel, not good feel, the feel good film of this year that kind of flies under the radar but so much that everyone likes it maybe no one loves it but everyone likes it enough that it will be nominated and maybe even possibly win because of that feel good thing going on there's also the mudbound which is a netflix film which is interesting because there's always going to be discussion with netflix that can a netflix film and will it be nominated for best picture and can it win one big thing about the Academy and the way they nominate films and the way they vote for films for Best Picture is that you have to have that movie seen by enough people or at least word of mouth by enough people so that you vote for it. And the way they do that with Academy voters is that they give them screenings. They, they personally mail all of the Academy voters, all thousands of them, the pictures, the the movies, so they can watch it. Will they watch it? Maybe, maybe not. But by having a physical copy of the movie, you have a better chance of them watching the film rather than going and seeking out a showtime at a movie theater. Personally, I haven't even been to the movies in months, so I've been watching films through streaming devices like Netflix and through, you know, Amazon Prime and just just like that. So Mudbound, being a Netflix film, will that play in its favor because anyone with a Netflix account, which is which I, I believe is every single person, so will everyone with a Netflix account having the accessibility to watch Mudbound and then to vote for this film or not vote for this film, but having the capability of having everyone watch this film, I think, is a huge plus and in the favor of Netflix going forward. Will they finally make a film that is just absolutely amazing that you can't ignore and you have to vote for it? Maybe. Is Mudbound that film? Probably not. And is Netflix still still have a, a you know a stigma that it can't be considered seriously for best picture consideration? That is also going to be a, an, an issue going forward for Netflix. It's 
obviously has taken over television with Netflix, Amazon Prime, and now Hulu receiving plenty of recognition for television. But can it crack into Best Pictures? Can it crack into the Academy Awards? Not yet. It has not yet. But maybe it will. So that being said, there are there is still that one discussion because for the first half of this year, through summer, there were amazing, amazing films. And I was impressed by the quality of films throughout the year so far. Because usually you get your summer blockbusters with just, just a lot of sequels, a lot of explosions, a lot of action films. Nothing makes sense. Nothing's really Oscar-worthy. Well, we got Dunkirk. And then we had some other really great films early in the year, too. Especially as early as February, March, and April. So we had films such as Logan and... You know, War for the Planet of the Apes, Get Out, Wonder Woman, even Beauty and the Beast. Can any of these films really crack into the top Best Picture nominations? Can they be nominated for Best Picture? Do they have a chance of winning? <clears throat> and I'm going to say yes and no, probably. I would say that they don't have a chance of winning. But for for films like these that have gotten great, great reviews, have gotten have have made a ton of money at the box office and have been released in the first half of the year, it's going to be a feat, a, a great accomplishment if they just get nominated to be a Best Picture. Just to say Best Picture nominee is going to be their win. So what film do I think has the best chance? Um, I believe Get Out does because, you know, Wonder Woman was great and all, and it is very, very driven by females with a female lead female director but it's still a superhero film and those are really really tough to sell to academy uh well academy voters i don't think that's going to get in they're going to push really really hard for it and maybe in ways they deserve to be a top 10 nominee but i just don't think it's going to get in beauty and the beast i think does have somewhat of a good chance Maybe not a best picture, but it definitely will get song, it will get costumes, it's going to get makeup and things like that. But to remember that when Beauty and the Beast was released, I think in 1992 or 1993, it was an animated picture that was nominated for best picture. And this was when there were only five nominations for the year. I believe it's the only animated film to be nominated for best picture before... Best Picture nominees expanded to more than five. So that, would that play in it? And is easily the number one film of the year, box office-wise, maybe until Star Wars comes out, but it's easily the number one film of the year, box office-wise. So will that play a big part of it? Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. But like I said earlier, Get Out, I think, has the best chance. You know, we have, you know, Peel, and he... he it's just a film that everyone is talking about. When it came out, everyone talked about it. Even after it came out, everyone continued to talk about it. It's a horror, yes, but is it that horrific? It's it's borderline horror because it's also very, very funny. So horror comedy, is that really a genre that could be nominated for Best Picture? Maybe, maybe not. But at the same time, it is also super, 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 you know... It's satirical, and it's political, and it's a commentary about racism. And so in those themes, it's very important. And maybe that transcends the comedy horror aspect of the film. Maybe that 
is really going to wake up some people in the academy and say this movie deserves to be talked about seriously it can very well be dismissed because it is a horror because it is a comedy but in my opinion it shouldn't be in my opinion it might sneak in it still depends if any of these films that i've already mentioned just completely bomb like you know if lady bird is absolutely terrible or if um you know if the netflix mudbound film backlash because it's a netflix film won't get any attention at all that's going to open up some slots for films like get out for films like possibly wonder woman or beauty and the beast so we'll see again this is an exciting time i love this time i love oscar season and i can't wait for um you know i can't wait to see these movies and to make my predictions based on you know my own perceptions of how well these films would do with the academy well that's that thank you for listening this has been the recap with rob um that's me and uh this is a popcorn and pop culture podcast segment so please please tune in to next time i'll see you guys later